This morning we're going to take a peek at the gospel according to Matthew, starting in the ninth chapter. And in order to set the stage for this particular passage, we need to look a little earlier in the gospel uh, to see what Jesus has been doing and what Matthew has been doing in terms of the type of message he is constructing. In the verses in the previous chapter, Matthew has Jesus doing things that demonstrate his authority. Jesus is ministering in his travels. Chapter eight begins with the healing of a man with a skin disease. And this is Jesus healing a person who he is in front of by the request of the person who needs to be healed. Next thing is that the healing of the centurion's servant. And this is healing at the request of the centurion for somebody else. And the healing is accomplished at a distance. Jesus isn't standing next to the person who's being healed. The centurion says, hey, you don't need to come to my house. You have all authority. You can just speak the words and and my servant will be healed back at my place. And Jesus says, wow, that's impressive faith. And you're right, it's true. And the servant is healed. So Jesus doesn't have to be in proximity to heal. He just has to speak the word. Then Jesus heals a whole bunch of people at the home of Peter's mother-in-law. He first heals the mother-in-law. She cooks them food. And then the town brings lots of people in and he heals tons of folks. And I think we're supposed to understand it's not like the healing power of Jesus is easily exhausted, right? It's not like he can heal one person and then he has to store up the energy again to heal someone else or something. Or there's only so many people he can heal. He heals everybody who comes that night. And we're meant to understand that Jesus has authority to heal. And then we shift categories. The next story is, next story is a storm kicks up on the sea and Jesus calms the storm. Now this is more than just healing of persons. This is control of the elemental forces of nature. This is a whole new category of authority for Jesus. And then the next story we get is Jesus casting out demons from two guys. And we're meant to understand that Jesus has authority in the world of spirits. And so you can sort of see that Matthew's making the case, category by category, that Jesus just has all authority. That's it's his, that, that, that he is this individual who we need to pay attention to. So then at the beginning of Matthew 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. Some of his friends carry the man who can't walk to Jesus. And then Jesus forgives the sins of the man who can't walk. And the crowd begins to gripe at this, saying, hey, only God can forgive sins. Who do you think you are, Jesus, forgiving sins? And then Jesus, in order to prove to them that he had the authority to forgive sins, which would be a different category again, He heals the man. And the healing of the man is supposed to say to the crowd that's there, hey, you guys think that healing a person's physical condition is the most difficult thing. The reality is it's forgiveness of sins that is the most 
difficult thing, and the transformation of individuals, which is the most traditional thing or most difficult thing. And so, so that you know all authority is mine, he says to the man, get up and walk, and the guy skedaddles. What's shocking about this final healing is this. The paralytic guy never asks for healing. The paralytic guy never asked for forgiveness. In fact, we don't have any record that he even repented of anything. And you might wonder, why are those details absent from this story? And the reason they're absent is because of this. The focus of the story is, Jesus has the power to forgive sins. That's the headline, and that's what we need to know. The emphasis is on Jesus's power and authority. And his power and authority causes significant problems with the religious authorities of the day. They want to be the ones to determine what is right and wrong. They want to make the rules, decide who is in and who is out. They want to be able to judge people based on their own understanding of the law. And they enjoy a confidence in their lifestyle believing that what they did and how they lived was what God desired because they know better than Jesus what holiness should look like. That's not a place I want to stand. I don't want to ever think that I know better than Jesus what holiness looks like. Jesus doesn't fit their pattern, and so they are alarmed. If Jesus is right, they're wrong. Their authority is challenged. Their security is shaken. And their finely crafted personas are just dismantled. And now, in our passage, another dispute is brewing. We move from demonstrations of power, which was Matthew 8 into 9, now to controversies. Jesus selects Matthew as a follower. And determining who can enter, who is eligible to be a follower, is the controversy. This is Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9, and I would invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collection station. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So you hear a story like this and you might ask yourself, why does Jesus keep such bad company? Doesn't he know that bad company cor corrupts character? 
Well, that may be true for us, but it's not true for Jesus. Why is it true for us and not true for Jesus? Well, because we are so easily tempted. We are easily molded by the world, shaped by our own human desires. Advertisers, influencers, colleagues and employees, they're all trying to get us to dance to their tunes. And sometimes when we don't see the danger, we jump right in. This is part of why we come to church every week. We are susceptible and exposed to all these different things that pull us out of shape and and try to lead us down the wrong way. And, And we need the corrective action of the Holy Spirit continually in our life if we're gonna continue to follow Christ and do what he calls us to do. And and we just can't let off on that. It will be a constant battle, our lives, to be able to appropriate the grace of the Holy Spirit and to follow him step by step because there are so many adversaries out there And so we tend to stay away from bad company, and yet Jesus isn't doing that. We're susceptible to the compromise. We shield ourselves from it. But the thing about Jesus is, he isn't in any danger of being corrupted. He he knows who he is. He knows whose he is. He is carrying the light of God within himself. He isn't in any danger of being corrupted. In fact, his holiness is so pervasive that it infects the other people that he encounters. He's not in in any way concerned about being corrupted by others. His goal is to influence, to infect others with his holiness. I think that's his desire for us as well. That we are to be so in unison with the Holy Spirit's work that we're not in danger of corruption. We're out to infect the world with holiness, with with the love of God. You might ask yourself, how bad really was the company that Jesus was keeping? Well, I don't know who... Who determines what really is good and bad? I mean, today, the culture seems to be screaming that it knows the difference between good and bad, and it sets very particular standards for what is good is bad, good or bad. And we, we label folks based on what the popular virtues and vices are of the day. It's never been more confusing than it is now, because we have a culture that labels vice as virtue, and so it's really difficult today to figure out how bad any person is or how, how good any person is. We've changed so much. 60 years ago, they tell me that um, the biggest problems in the school system were chewing gum in class, not putting the scrap paper in the trash can, too much noise in the halls, and not raising your hand before you speak. You were bad if you didn't follow those rules. Today, the problems in the school are sexual harassment, verbal abuse of the teachers, drug and gang violence, and you know what the list is. We've we've changed. The secular measurements of good and bad are completely useless to us. But we are fortunate to have some religious measures of good and evil. We Christians tend to think of good and evil in terms of the Ten Commandments. It's not a bad place to start. 
And we also know that Jesus has raised the bar from the Ten Commandments by commanding us to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. But regardless of what measurement you use, the company that Jesus was keeping was not good. These folks were not good people. In fact, just being seen with the folks that Jesus is hanging out with is enough to completely disqualify him from being a religious leader in this particular day. You couldn't hang out with tax collectors because they were thieves. Then and now, you don't really want to hang out with thieves, right? We don't want our kids hanging out with thieves. You couldn't allow yourself to be seen with women of poor reputation for obvious reasons. Then and now, this is true. In that day, when you went to someone's house to eat dinner with them, what you were saying, actually what you were shouting, was this. The people you invite into your home, the people you eat with, are accepted by you. They're accepted. To the minds of the people in that day, you're placing yourself on the same level as them if you eat dinner with them. So why would Jesus eat with people that the religious community of that time shunned? The gospel writer Luke gives us this answer. He answers the question in three parables. There was a sheep that was lost. There was a coin that was lost. There was a son that was lost. And the woman and the shepherd and the father will do whatever is necessary to bring the lost things home. That's how Luke answers this question. Matthew answers the question in a slightly different way. He says, it's not the well that need a doctor. It's the sick. Now, we wouldn't think, of anyth we wouldn't think anything of a doctor making a house call to someone who was ill. We would respect that. We would think that's a positive thing. And yet Jesus is being condemned for going to the home of someone who needs his care. Jesus is not just a friend of sinners. He is also their doctor. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. I came to invite. Jesus is inviting sinners. Jesus is at leisure with sinners. He is socializing with sinners and not treating them as enemies. The priest of the day would have said this. He needs to make a statement against tax collectors. How will people know where he stands? Is he saying that the foul and oppressive treatment we get from tax collectors is okay? Tax collectors destroy families, impoverish families. Where is God's justice if Jesus eats with them? We misunderstand Jesus when we keep an attitude like that. What Jesus is really saying is this. I'm not eating with them because they're worthy, but because God in his graciousness wants to include them in his kingdom. 
He's inviting them in. He is not willing that any should perish. Jesus is the good shepherd. He goes where he is needed. We know from our perspective that Jesus is the Messiah of God. We know that he was raised in a Jewish family and he would have studied the books of the Bible as a young boy. And I have to believe that as an adult now ministering as the Messiah of Israel, he would have remembered the words of Zechariah where Zechariah talks about, defines what a worthless shepherd is like. This is Zechariah 11, worthless shepherd. I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for the perishing or seek the wandering or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones. Verse 17, oh, my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock, may the sword strike your arm and your right eye. May your arm be completely withered, your right eye utterly blinded. This is how Zechariah describes the worthless shepherds who were leading Israel in that day. But by contrast, Jesus is the authentic, worthy shepherd. And this authentic shepherd must care for the whole flock, especially the perishing, the wandering, the maimed, or the sick. Jesus goes a step farther in his response to the scribes and Pharisees, however. He's not just saying, I'm here to heal the sick. He's saying, you should go and see what this passage means. And he quotes Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The priests would have been a little offended at Jesus saying this to them. They would have felt like Jesus was saying to them, don't you know the scripture? And, you know, you hate to say that to the high priests and the chief priests because they believe they embody the scripture. But Jesus is just simply pointing out, you are missing what God is doing in the world right now. You are so caught up in your legalistic ideas of who's in and who's out and what's right and what's wrong that you're missing the passion of God to save the world. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is on a mission to bring the kingdom of God to those who have been cast out by the religious leaders of his day. That should give us pause. We should be considering that. Our duty is to invite people to the banquet that God has prepared. Who are those people? Who are the people we despise? Who are the people, if we're setting up our guest list of who we're going to invite to the banquet, are the folks who need to be invited rather than the folks we want to have dinner with. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. What's Paul saying? We don't look around at the crowd around us and make human judgments about people. 
we give up that right of judgment to the Father. Jesus will be the judge on that day. In the meantime, we act like Christ, inviting whosoever would like to come, to come. To come join, to have a seat at the table of the banquet of God. Our good and bad categories don't serve us very well. I think we would do better if instead of trying to put people into convenient bad or good categories, we would choose just two categories. And we would see everyone as Christian or pre-Christian. One or the other. Christian or pre People who haven't quite gotten there yet, but perhaps through our testimony, through the work of the Holy Spirit, they might just be able to get to the place where they're desiring to step into the kingdom. And I wonder who we unintentionally disqualify because we're not really willing to believe that any particular people like that could ever get into the kingdom of God. And so we just stay away. This chapter ends with a revelation of the heart of Jesus. This is verse 35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Are we praying for more opportunities to speak the words of truth, the words of life? Are we willing to reach out to those whose opinions we despise? Are we willing to befriend the friendless? Are we willing to embrace the lost? The very next story in the gospel is another healing story that has controversy laced through it. A synagogue ruler has a daughter, needs Jesus' attention. On the way, Jesus meets a poverty-stricken, homeless woman who's ill. And everyone expects that Jesus will go to the home of the important official first and take care of that matter. And yet he stops and delays and, and deals with the social outcast, the woman who was unclean, who was not allowed to move in society. And he stops and he takes time to speak with her. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Welcomes her back into the community because Jesus is a friend of the homeless and of the sinner and of the despised and all those who most desperately need to be invited into his banquet hall. You know, when the Church of the Nazarene was founded, we were known for compassionate ministries. We set up orphanages. We set up homes for unwed mothers. We, we met the disease of the culture face to face and welcomed the sinner in. That's why we're called the Church of the Nazarene. 
The Nazarene being poor, lonely, lowly Jesus. Town of Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? And yet Jesus is the one who stands ever in solidarity with the poor and the outcast and the broken and the lonely and the despised. But somehow, his church has got all washed up and cleaned and shiny brass buttons on the coat and and we forget where we came from. We forget the mission of Christ in the world. We forget the compassion of God for everyone. And we're not even all that passionate about praying that God would send laborers into the field because he might just send us. we're going to be in step with the Holy Spirit embracing the passion for his mission is primary to that and we must be praying Lord here I am send me and we must be praying Lord show me the opportunities that I have when I encounter folks who need to hear your story make it clear to me give me the courage I get the impression that people think when the Bible tells us to pray for courage, it's to post things that are somewhat offensive on Facebook. That's not what the courage we're praying for is. The courage we're praying for is to know when we must speak for him under the guidance of the Spirit and having the courage to do that person to person, to tell the story of Christ to those who most need it. Understanding there may be repercussions to that. And that's why we need boldness. But we don't need boldness to keep our mouth shut. We don't need boldness to insulate ourselves from anything that's difficult or people we despise and don't want to hang out with. It's my prayer. that we would be people of courage who would discern the voice of the Spirit and speak the words of God to the people who need to hear them most. I said to someone this week, someone who I think might have been a little embarrassed to come to church, I said, you should think of the church as a hospital where sick people come to get help rather than as a holy gathering where if you don't have the right clothes, you might not fit in. I mean, if you went to the hospital and you checked into the emergency room and people judged you because you were sick, you'd find a different emergency room to go to. But it's my prayer that this fellowship will be an open fellowship that will care for the sick, will care for those who need to hear the word of God, will nurture those who come into relationship with Christ so that we can actually be the hands and feet of Christ in this place, in our community. My favorite paragraph in studying for this sermon was the words of the author who said, Jesus didn't 
eat with those folks because they were worthy. He ate with those folks because of the magnificent love of God for everyone. And God wants everyone to be included. He wants the whole world to know that he loves them. And he wants to use you and me to let them know. Sing with me. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. In your church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In your church, Lord, be glorified today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we affirm that you are the judge and we are not. And we ask for your grace now that we might embrace men and women for the sake of the kingdom of God. That we will be secure in our own relationship with you to the extent that we are not worried about coming into proximity with those who perhaps have opinions we can't support or actions that are questionable, or folks who are despised by the culture. Lord, give us the full measure of your compassion for the lost. Give us a passion for your mission, Lord Jesus. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Show us opportunities to share the goodness of your love. May we be men and women, teens and kids, marked by your compassion and love. May we be agents of your peace in this world. Use us, Holy Spirit, so that men and women can see you for who you are, can know that they are loved by you. Be glorified in our lives, Lord Jesus. May we conform completely to the mission of the Spirit in this world. And now may God give you the grace to be his voice in all of your relationships. And may you know the power of the Holy Spirit to discern when to speak, when not to speak, and when to just let your life speak to the glory of God now and forever. Amen.